Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Space Update, brought to you by the Fantastic Total Space Network. I'm Ryan, and joining us today is Stefan Powell from Dawn Aerospace, talking about their space plane, propulsion systems, and a whole lot more. Stefan, thank you very much for joining us today. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. No problem. Just to kick things off before we get into everything, I just want to give the guys a bit of a background on Dawn Aerospace and how it all started. Yeah, Dawn, Dawn Aerospace is a space transportation company, you know, and, and, and we take a very holistic approach to that. It's it's not just about getting to space, um, but it's also about mobility in space. And eventually it's going to be able to be about getting things back down to Earth as well. So that's, you know, we, we talk about deliver position and return things from space. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we see a huge market coming, you know, way beyond small satellites. That's definitely, you know, the, the growing niche at the moment, for sure. But 20, 30, 40 years from now, space is still going to be growing. It's just going to be like the Internet. You know, this is it's going to become really core to to how humanity operates, you know, not just on Earth, but going beyond going to the moon, going to Mars, doing all kinds of cool stuff in space. So we, we don't see this growth slowing down. And so we're really setting ourselves up to to service that market need where, you know, there's not just sort of, you know, maybe 150 launches um, a year needed as is currently done, but, you know, well into the thousands. Um, so, you know, we're, we're thinking about how do we solve these space transportation problems when we need to be doing, you know, daily launch from every major city without, you know, ruining the environment, without it being incredibly expensive to, to service all these industries that, that we know are coming, like, you know, in space manufacturing, space tourism is a big thing as well. Um, you know, all these communications networks are, are really building very, very quickly in Earth observation stuff. We really don't know what, you know, exactly which one of these things is going to happen, but we're quite sure they're all going to need to get to space. They're going to need to move around in space, and, and a lot of them are going to need to be able to get huge amounts back down. So it was from this, I guess, just pondering process of, you know, it took us a few years to really think about where is this really going? Where's the park going in, in 10, 20, 30 years time? And how do we build a business around that? What's what's the one thing that we can hold true that, that we know if we work on this for the next 20 years, it'll have value. And space transportation was that. And you got the beautiful Mark II Aurora behind you there on the, on the picture, which is the most recent development uh, vehicle that you've got going. You've had the little Mark One, which was essentially just a little RC plane, we testing out some of the, the little thrusters out there and everything. I saw the video up on you. The Mark II, the most recent one, it's a good 4.8 metres long, that one, and weighing around 280 kilograms, remember rightly. What are you hoping to achieve with this new new vehicle, albeit it won't be the full orbital vehicle, if you like? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, like what I just talked about is super dreamy, you know, that's way off in space, really. But we've got, we've got to start at a practical end, right? You know, if, if we can't go raise a billion dollars to go build the end product, we've, we've got to show that, you know, one, Dawn Aerospace is not a bunch of fools, and um, two, that we actually have a plan to make this happen. So, yeah, the, the Mark 1 was really just about showing, hey, we can put a rocket on a plane and we can fly it around multiple times a day. And there's there's nothing crazy about rocket engines that means that you you can't operate them like any other engine it's just an engine um, the mark ii is about showing that we can fly a vehicle to space in the same way that we fly a regular aircraft so you know that there's nothing that necessitates unreusability you know if everyone thinks of rockets as these things that you use once or now spacex has kind of changed that paradigm to something that maybe you can use 10 times but you know as long as they're only 98 percent reliable you're never going to get past 50 reuses because statistically the thing's going to blow itself up by then. 
we need to show that we can have this paradigm shift. We can operate like an aircraft. You know, we can get reliability that's similar to an aircraft. We can fly out of an airport. We can fly under aircraft regulations. We can do all of these things that are needed to get to this really crazy scalability that, that the airline industry enjoys every day. You know, the, the airline industry does as many flights in an hour as um, humanity has done to space ever. You know, that, that's the crazy scalability of, of the airline industry. And so, so the Mark II is really about showing that we can actually achieve that with a truly space-faring vehicle. You know, this thing will go to 100 kilometers altitude and back, and we'll put some more gas in the tank, and we'll go fly it again. And it'll be cheap. It'll be properly reusable. And I'm right in thinking that it's just uh, jet jet powered at the moment. It's not got any kind of uh, rocket engines in there as such. Yeah, the, the the very first development step of the Mark II is to just qualify the airframe. So you know, it's it's experimental aerodynamics, it's experimental control systems. If we don't have to put an experimental engine on there to start with, that's great. You know, we can fly it around on commercial jets, qualify all the airframe and the navigation and stuff. But jets will never get you to space, so you've got to take them off at some point. Um, so you know, we're looking to do that in about six months or a or a year once we've qualified the airframe put the rocket motor on and then we'll be able to fly to space. Just a random question. Are you a big remote control plane fan? Is that where it kind of spanned from, really? <laughs> um, more out of necessity than anything else. Um, I certainly wasn't originally. I mean, we played around with them a bit, but I wouldn't say uh, I was a crazy big fan of them. Um, no, we, I mean, we have people on board now who've been doing it all their lives. That so, You know, they go flying 10 hours a week sort of thing. Yeah, and uh, moving on, obviously, it's a scalable vehicle and everything. Um, once you go up to the Mark III, which is in excess of, I think, 18 metres long, that vehicle, um, what can we expect from the Mark III? Obviously, we'll have the built-in second stage that will deploy from the, the top payload because, obviously, you've got to protect the, the bottom side. Of it. Um, what can we expect from Mark III comes around? Yeah, so, so the Mark III is kind of the next logical extension of the Mark II, right? You know, once we have a vehicle that can operate like an aircraft, you know, the, the Mark II, it'll be too small to do anything, you know, really useful in terms of getting stuff to space. The Mark III will be the, the minimum size we can build to, to get a useful payload to, to orbit. So we think that'll be about 250 kilograms is kind of as small as what really makes sense. Um, it'll allow us to service the small sat market, which we still believe will, will be a niche, um, but it'll allow us to compete in that market at the same sort of price um, as what SpaceX currently do for rideshare. So that's that's the target. Um, yeah, it'll be um, certainly have an expendable second stage. That's that's certainly necessary. Once again, we you know that the end goal is to be able to get towards full reusability, but you need a path to be able to do that. Um, reusability of the second stage is really really challenging. It's solvable, but it's certainly not the entry point. You know, having an expendable second stage is pretty acceptable. For you know, the meantime, will still be 96% reusable. So you know, it's still 96% of the problem solved. It's a, it's a big step in the right direction, but it's it's not the end game. And to that end, you know, building a small sat launcher is not the end game for this technology. It's the entry point. Um, you know, later on, we'll certainly build bigger versions of this. You know, a, a medium lift launcher. Um, the the concept scales up beautifully. Um, prices drop significantly again. You know, all your operational and fixed costs stay relatively the same, um, but your, your payload goes up linearly with scale. Um, so it certainly makes sense to build a bigger version of this at some point. 
but you know aircraft development is expensive so you know you, we will need to have a very solid company foundation to be able to go raise serious cash to, to actually develop that next scale as well yeah yeah and what made you guys go in the direction of using well, the jet plane method because i get asked that a lot when i talk about you guys why do they use the plane method why don't they just use a rocket booster i mean basically firstly it's it's the jet plane part is really just a development step you know the we'll, we'll get rid of the jets pretty quickly but the why a plane um basically because the thing that's really limiting for a rocket is not so much the performance like yes there's definitely a performance decrease of using you know uh, wings and having landing gear and extra weight is all all the hassle and that means you have a lower payload fraction. So you burn more fuel for the same amount of payload. That sounds dumb, but you get all the operational benefit. You know, you can reuse your hardware in the same day. Like just that one thing is so crazily beneficial. It means you don't need a rocket factory. It means that you can just operate a small fleet of vehicles that fly every day. You know, that, that saves you 40 or 50% of your total cost. You need to remember that fuel is only about 2% of total mission costs at most that's for the most expensive launches so if i've got a lower payload fraction yes that probably means i burn twice as much fuel for the same payload so my fuel cost is going to go from two percent to four percent but my hardware cost is going to go from forty percent to maybe one percent you know so, so that reusing the hardware saves me 39 percent. sure i'll pay a two percent penalty and more fuel the, the method's almost like combi combining don't mind mention it like the virgin galactic virgin orbit's kind of like almost integrated into one you've got the the airplane vehicle then you've got the the launch it as the second stage coming out coming out of it kind of thing so it's kind of that kind of method yeah, in a way. um although i like i, I think that this is really just focusing on the hardware, which is almost the most uninteresting part. It's it's the bit that people don't realize, though, that the 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 cost of operations is so heavily driven by the the launch site that you need. You know, operating out of Kennedy Space Center or owning a seven four seven that only does a few flights every year is like that's incredibly expensive. You know, seven four seven is like two hundred million dollars just to own that thing. A space center is if only, if only you're at your own airlines thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, if, if you're going to give me a free 200 million dollars to, to invest in my ground infrastructure i still wouldn't buy a 747 I'd, I'd build a spaceport or actually i'd pocket the 200 million and i'd go use an airport because they already exist and they cost a few thousand dollars to fly out of you know, it's... Quite recently, you got, you guys got uh, approval uh, from the I believe the local government to use some of the local airports for future testing. Exactly. You know, we can just go and use existing existing airports. We don't have to go build a spaceport. We don't have to own a seven four seven. We can. There's there's airports all around the world. There's spaceports everywhere. You know, we'll we'll be able to fly this vehicle from Texas Midlands, Spaceport America, the developing ones in Europe. There's ones in New Zealand. There's the it's runways everywhere. We can go fly from anywhere. At that point, it's really only a regulatory problem. You know, can I um, integrate with airspace? Can I um, not impede other airspace users? So that's also that. That's the last key to this. You know, once I've got the hardware that can fly every day, I've got airports I can fly out of everywhere. I just need a rule set that I can fly every day. Yeah, and then the only limiting factor is just launching in a safe area out at sea, up in the air, just not overpopulated areas, really. Is yeah, it? exactly. But once again, that comes down to your your launch vehicle. Um, so you know, we're certifying this as an aircraft. This vehicle will be designed to be as safe as other aircraft. Just because it's got a rocket on board doesn't mean that it needs to be dangerous. Sure, it means that we really need to, you know, we need to develop the technology to show that it is as safe as other aircraft. But that's exactly what we're proving out with the Mark II. That's exactly what we're 
um, doing with the Civil Aviation Authority in New Zealand to be able to show that, look, we can have um, safe failure modes, we can have maintenance and, and operating procedures that achieve the same safety as other aircraft. So in fact, we don't need exclusive airspace. Um, just going a bit of a tangent, I just got uh, support here. The, I don't know if you've came across the British Sabre engine by reaction engines. They're air breathing ramjet slash and rocket single stage to orbit or do, would you if that ever came to be would you ever consider putting it in a future version of your oh absolutely that that's that's the dream engine like everyone would want that thing it's it's amazing um the only thing i question is when can i have it and how much does it cost um we're in quite a few uh, <laughs> few books <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so um like once again we, we don't actually see it as necessary a classic engine yeah it burns more fuel but once again like the fuel is just not the driving performance criteria of these vehicles the, it doesn't matter how much how expensive the fuel is it, it basically or how much you burn that that's just you know it, it's kind of like uh, how how much do you care about your car's fuel efficiency throw away your car every single day would you really brag about owning a prius i'd probably you know so the, the engine is kind of like, yeah, it's not that important. The thing that's really important right now is that I can use my car every single day. Once I can do that, then I'll care about fuel efficiency. Yeah, and also you're planning on using green fuels similar to quite a few other companies out there. Can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of fuels you're Yeah, planning? yeah, it's, it's, it's really key that, you know, we choose fuels that are um, sustainable and um, ones that we can eventually also replace with like totally um, green. Um, so, you know, for, for now, it's just reasonably normal kerosene, but there's, um, just like the rest of the aviation industry, there's a, um, a need to go towards biofuels. Um, so bio-kerosene, bioethanol is, is also um, totally an option. Um, the other thing is that they really need to be storable. You know, these need to be fuels that don't just sort of evaporate if you turn the other way. So we have to avoid all the cryogenics. Um, you know, liquid oxygen is great, um, fantastic oxidizer, but it doesn't work very well for aircraft. So um, for that reason, we choose hydrogen peroxide. Also, yeah, storable, um, still pretty high performance, uh, really great. I mean, uh, lots of other companies out there also um, love to work with hydrogen peroxide. And it just simplifies the the engine mechanics and everything, doesn't it? It's easier to light up the engine and everything like that. Some of the very first rocket engines were built on it. Um, it's been proven to be very reliable, um, very easy to restart engines, very easy to actually mimic a jet engine. The the engine really almost becomes like a jet engine, and and that there's you know hydrogen peroxide going through it, and then you really only afterburn kerosene. So in that sense, it's it's really great. You know, it allows us to build a rocket engine that's much more similar to a jet engine. It makes it a lot easier to you know get that reliability and be able to certify it achieve that reliability we need to get the certifications we need to be able to fly as an aircraft and uh, we briefly mentioned the second stage um obviously you're probably planning that um so at least initially it'll be pretty classic sort of design um with the exception of that it doesn't have any fairings or anything on board um so one of the other key elements um different to a rocket is that we don't want to be dropping anything um at least not intentionally um into the ocean so once again so we don't need exclusion zones there's no danger of being underneath um, a vehicle as long as everything is is operating nominally so the second stage is entirely feared inside the the first stage of the vehicle um, other than that it'll be a pretty classic second stage you know um, a few tanks a pretty simple thrust vector controlled engine um, once again storable propellants um, peroxide and kerosene 
great, great. Look forward to seeing seeing that and the, the Mark III and everything. But um, also, obviously, you've got your, your vehicle and everything that you're developing um, quite rapidly by the looks of it, and you've got it all painted up with a little competition we saw earlier on, and the vehicle looks absolutely fantastic now. I remember seeing it last year in the uh, in your workshop, just plain but black and anthracite grey, ready to be painted. Done the competition. Now it's now it's that fantastic black, black, white, and red in the fitting Dawn Aerospace. Um, but what few people don't quite realise, as well as the development of the vehicle and everything, you do a lot of propulsion uh, supply. Yeah, that was really kind of where the company started. So, you know, like I talked about at the start, the sort of deliver position return, you know, the, the delivering stuff to space is the, that's the sexy part. That's the cool, yeah, we're building a space plane part, but um, yeah, the actually a very immediate problem is um, mobility, um, particularly for small satellites. You know, these CubeSats, uh, a lot of them really don't have particularly good mobility options, I, I suppose. You know, they, there's, there's lots of electric propulsion stuff out there, which is good, but it, um, it, it requires a lot of power and it requires a lot of time and it can restrain a lot of missions. It means, you know, for example, if you're going to use an electric um, propulsion system to you know, take a rideshare flight on a SpaceX flight and then go to your target orbit, you, you might spend three or even six months just acquiring your actual target orbit. For a CubeSat, that typically only lasts at best two or three years. Six months is a lot of your mission value just gone. So giving them chemical propulsion that allows them to you know, get on orbit within weeks, maybe even days, that really wins them a lot of time. That's, that's really valuable to them. And just to reflect their success of that, um, you just launched, uh, well, helped uh, launch the Hyper Global. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, we sent one up on there. We also had another mission I can't talk too much about, the um, six thrusters on board of a, of, of a larger um, B-20 thruster on, on another satellite. Um, so, yeah, that, that mission was actually a really pretty busy one for us, a couple of satellites there. Um, and there's another one going up on, on a Soyuz launch as well. Yeah, I just want to highlight this. This really kind of dispels a bit of a myth that, that we were battling against for years as well. People saying, oh, you can't put high-performance pressurized systems on CubeSats. No one will accept that. You know, that's too dangerous. That's too this, that, and the other. And, and now we've had them launch on um, European um, launches on Vega. We've had it launch on SpaceX. We're going to have it launch on, on Soyuz. So that really covers all the, all the bases. Well, most of them anyway. I think we still have to get on get on a PSLV and that pretty much covers 90% of the small sat capacity. And what's it feel like going from looking back a few years ago from being just a, a, that little company now you're speaking to the likes of all the SpaceX launching things on Soyuz, the Ariane rocket. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely a bit surreal to see, you know, these these really epic photos of um, like the Transporter 1 stack. There were some really cool photos that went around of that and being like, oh yeah, we've, we've got hardware there, we've got hardware there and it's, yeah, it's, it's um, it's been a journey for sure, but um, it's it's still going really fast. You know, there's still so so many companies that are interested in this because yeah, we're 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 solving a real problem there. It's it's really nice to see that um, what we thought was the problem really is, and and our solution really fixes that too. And obviously, anyone watching back or listening in, um, if you go on the Dawn Aerospace website, you can actually look at the cost and how the eight these thrusters look like for yourself on the website there's obviously like a little shopping list on there within reason isn't there that you can have a look at and see how much it actually costs yeah so i mean that's really about transparency for us um, that's one of the the super annoying things about aerospace procurement 
so few people actually talk about their prices and there's no need for the secrecy. There's no need for people to reserve the option to get the most out of the customer, I suppose. Um, you know, we, we, we want to open this up. We want to commoditize it. Thrusters aren't anything super amazing or special. Um, we should be able to just sell them. You should be able to see what they cost. There's no need to have a three month long RFQ process to figure out what this thing is going to cost you. So yeah, we, we want to be as open as and transparent as possible. And yeah. that means putting our prices out there, putting our ICDs out there and all the information that somebody needs to get our hardware on their satellite. So in terms of when you do the riding the engine, stuff like that, and then is it just the supply only or do the guys bring sets to you and you provide the whole package? Yeah, so we kind of, we can do pretty much anything that they need. So uh, for, for the example of Hyber, um, you know, we, we supplied the whole module. We supplied them with a, what's called an engineering module up front to be able to, for them to be able to interface their satellite with, you know, a, like a dummy module to learn how to, how to use it. And we provide the whole module. Uh, we manage the filling, you know, we go fill the propellants with it. We also worked with their, uh, launch provider to be able to figure out the, the launch logistics, how are we going to get their fueled up module to the launch site and on the, you know, on, on the rocket, we're really taking the customer right through this whole process they need to you know get get the thing that they want which is actually just mobility you know they don't actually care what widgets or details or documents or whatever they need to get it they just want to know that they have a button to push that moves their satellite from a lower orbit to a higher orbit and we've seen the, the obviously the likes of uh, rocket lab who are not too far away from you guys and everything obviously um they've developed uh, like their photon satellite bus you've obviously mentioned that project that you can't mention too much about with the more thrusters on and everything but do you think you develop your own satellite bus to make things easier um where, where we are going is being able to provide um, really customizable modules that people can put on their satellites so at, at least what we're seeing is that most satellite builders still want to be building their own you know their, their own bus or going to an integrator that that builds their own bus because there's just so many varieties of satellite out there you know everything from three years to 16 years to 50 kilogram buses to 250 kilogram buses. You know, if we were going to go into that, we would be competing with an already quite a mature market of bus builders, basically. And it, it's so hard to meet everyone's needs. What is quite easy for us is to come up with a propulsion module, you know, like a propulsion Lego brick, if you like, that's that, that we can scale, um, you know, different tank sizes, different thrusters or whatever, but keep the interface exactly the same. Essentially, it's just the same brick. You just click it on. And we're working on um, actually having an online configurator so that people can go in and, and just punch in the numbers of, you know, my satellite is this big. I need, you know, tell me how much propulsion I need to do my mission and then figure out how much is that going to weigh? How much is it going to cost? What's the interface going to look like? Um, so they can get all that information up front. And, and I mean, that that would feed directly into that then that tells them how much how much it costs. And, and then we kind of negate this whole um, laborious RFQ process. Like I'm sure the I don't think it's too likely that they'll actually punch in the credit card details and, and spend whatever, 30 grand on a, on a rocket motor. Great. If they do it, oh, I'm happy to deliver. You know, it's really just about showing them that, that they could, that it really is that simple. This doesn't have to be a complex process if you don't want it to be. Have you seen a few companies doing it now, being a lot more open and a lot more, put all your details in. You can actually, some of the other co launch companies, you can actually see how much it would cost to launch your, your vehicle, if you like, and everything, which is quite interesting to see, like the likes of like that. So it's quite interesting that being that open, it just gives you a bit more confidence when you, as the customer and everything. 
Um, I've got a few questions over from over on Twitter. Um, I think we covered the vast majority of them. One, what someone on Twitter asking, uh, are you planning on flying and launching from Dutch soil? Oh, I, I would love to. Um, we've, we've definitely been in some talks about places where we could potentially do that. Um, it's probably not on the it's not on the super likely list right now, but it's certainly possible. Obviously, we've already talked about plans for Mark Three, so we've got that question answered. Um, someone asked uh, on on the actual Mark Two or or Mark Three, is there any kind of, any kind of heat shield and underside? Yeah, so um, at least not initially. So um, we for thermal protection systems, we pretty much only need to go to high temperature carbons. Um, if you look at other vehicles that have done similar performance profiles, um, Spaceship One, Spaceship Two, they really don't need much in the way of um, thermal protection systems, because really, unlike you know, say like a Falcon Nine coming back, um, that thing really just comes down kind of like a diver doing a pin off a off a high diving board. You know, it really smacks into the into the low atmosphere at, at high Mach numbers. So it has to do these reentry burns, and even then, you know, it, it's really hitting it. We have wings and quite a lot of it. You know, we have so much wing that we can take off with this really heavy fueled up vehicle. By the time we come back for re-entry, we've burned 80% of our weight. We're coming back almost like a leaf. You know, we can do this pull-up maneuver in the high atmosphere. Um, you know, the, our, our maximum dynamic pressure, you know, one of the key aerodynamic parameters on re-entry is like less than a third of what Falcon 9 experiences. The maximum Mach numbers is um, way, way lower. You know, we'll probably see Mach 3 on reentry, while Falcon 9 sees about Mach 5.5 or higher, and at lower in the atmosphere. So the temperature is way, way higher for them. Um, it's, it's the great thing about having wings is you, you can get away with a lot more. Um, in saying that, though, um, we really do want to eventually have thermal protection systems because that allows us to build more and more performance into the first stage. The more performance we have in the first stage, the smaller the second stage gets, the higher fraction of reusability we get. And in that way, we kind of iterate towards this, um, you know, um, entirely reusable system. Yeah, yeah. And the very last question, we all know the answer to this. Uh, why is it not single stage? Yeah, I, I mean, basically, because if you want single stage to orbit, you have to do LOX hydrogen or you need a fancy engine like Sabre. And to be honest, um, I, I don't see it happening soon enough. That there is a way to get, you know, like I say, 96% of, of, of the problem solved by having two stage to orbit. Um, and then we don't need anything fancy. We can stay with all the everything that allows us to stay um, as an aircraft. You know, the, the, the real key here is we have to operate like an aircraft. Sure, I want the performance of a rocket, but I, I have to be reusable like an aircraft. I have to fly out of airports like an aircraft. I have to fly under aircraft rules, which means I need the reliability of an aircraft. And going to LOX hydrogen um, is immediately going to invalidate several of those things. Through all those questions and everything, um, as always, um, if there's any more pop along, I'm sure I'll ping them over to you. Um, I think all we've got time for this week. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Stefan. Uh, really appreciate just uh, sharing your experience in uh, Dawn Aerospace. Where, do you want to tell the guys where they can uh, catch Dawn Aerospace? Yeah, um, definitely. Um... Go to dawnaerospace.com, um, especially if you're looking for work, if you're at all into, into aircraft or rockets or in-space propulsion or satellite design or um, project management, um, lots of other soft skills as well, business development type stuff. Um, please, you know, we're, we're certainly looking for people. Go to Dawn Aerospace slash careers. Um, yeah, have a look and join the team. Thanks, everyone, for joining us this week's episode of Space Update. I've been Ryan. 
And as always, a big thank you to our Patreon supporters, uh, Anthony Mann, supporter there, Warhawk, Angry Astronaut, Howard Walker, Samuel Scuro, What About It, To The Future, Guy Pragalari, Framrick, and Susie and Marco. Thank you very much, guys. If you would like to support what we do here at Total Space Network and gain access to exclusive content and early access to episodes like these guys, uh, head over to patreon.com forward slash Total Space. And you can, as always, you can catch us over on YouTube, over on Twitter, 